Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. At the end of each year, the Global Council team has a tradition of sharing amongst ourselves a selection of our favourite articles, books and podcasts. We also share the list with our network in what has become a hotly anticipated item on the GC content calendar. Some of this informs our day jobs, but most of it could be also filed against the very interesting times that we live in. This year, we've decided to bring the discussion to our podcast, with members of the team discussing their choices and why they matter to them. All of the items mentioned are linked in the show notes, and you can find the full list of suggestions on our website. We hope you enjoy it, and do feel free to send us your own suggestions. Happy New Year from all at Global Council. First is Miranda Lutz, Senior Associate in our DC office, and Isadora Arredondo, Senior Associate in our Financial Services team. Hi, Isadora. Great to be with you here today to discuss the GC 2021 reading list. So I saw that you read an article from The Economist, Billions of Banknotes Are Missing. Why Does Nobody Care? That sounds a little ominous. So why don't you walk through um, what this this article says? Hi, Miranda. Yes, thank you. So um, this is a very interesting article. It's about the what's basically in policy circles referred to as the paradox of banknotes. And in essence, it's a trend that has been happening sort of post-financial crisis, uh, whereby the decline of cash, mostly in developed societies, continues, you know, as consumers adopt more sort of e-commerce solutions and digital payments, but the demand for cash itself continues to go up. So central banks continue to print banknotes, but they cannot track its circulation in everyday transactions. Um, and so, I mean, as, as, as you know from the work that we do on an everyday basis with, with, with clients operating in the, in the payments ecosystem, I think there's, a, there's quite a lot of a focus on, you know, the, the decline of, cl- of cash and the implications from, from pu- uh, public policy inclusion, um, financial, financial inclusion, sorry, and, and, and sort of, and, and, and broader sort of technology trends. Um, and this article basically explores, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to tell you exactly what the thesis, thesis behind this paradox is, because you might, you might not read the article, but in essence, it explores sort of the obscurity, I guess, in cash transactions and, and sort of this market of, of cash use, um, that is, that is not monitored by the authorities. And in essence, sort of stirs up a bit of the debate around, you know, what are some of the shortcomings related to cash as we also debate about its uh, its sort of benefits to the economy and to consumers? Yeah, and I think that this is a really interesting debate that's playing out not just in the UK or in Europe, but in the US as well. And I'm, it, it's interesting to think about cash because, you know, I myself haven't used a, a dollar bill in, you know, probably months, if not years. And so the, the fact that the the cash in circulation is rising is really interesting. And I think that this article opens up with a very interesting vignette about this woman called Tara Hanlon going through bridge security with uh, suitcases full of cash. It sounds like it's a pretty much made for TV moment there. So what has policymakers so concerned about this? If people aren't using cash, but there is increasing cash in circulation. Where is it going? 
So I think I think the, the, basically the underlying thesis is that it's being used for illicit transactions, right? Um, and I think I think from a policy perspective, um, you know, there is there is as, as I was saying, there is this sort of priority to keep cash in circulation because it meets financial inclusion objectives, but at the same time. There are obviously wider trends uh, in 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 you know the digital uh, digital asset space that where, whereby there are there are sort of increased transparency and increased sort of um, increased uh, efficiency surrounding digital payments and I guess I, I guess authorities are sort of struggling between those two ends of the spectrum of how do we continue ensuring that people participate in the economy with cash but also how do we get them you know how, how do we how do we take hold of this of this wider market of operations that is uh, you know outside of our our, our site um, and i guess and i guess it's it, you know there are, there are, there are sort of um, arguments for both sides of of maintaining the supply of cash as as well as, as sort of moving on to more modern uh, methods of 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 payment and 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 sort of monitoring them Yeah, it's pretty much impossible to have a conversation about cash these days without also bringing in the rise in digital currencies like cryptocurrency or central bank digital currencies, stable coins. Um, So and I know that you cover this um, quite a bit in your in your day job. So what about this article really stood out to you? And what do you think that it tells us about what we should pay attention to next year? Um, so I think definitely what stood out for me was the side of the debate surrounding cash that I hadn't considered. Um, I had mostly considered it from the perspective of, you know, first of all, from from a personal perspective, you know, thinking about about cash not being, you know, even being shocked when I travel or you know back home to my to my country and I and I'm using cash and coins. I'm still sort of it's it's still kind of you know from the personal implications of seeing its demise or its decline. Um, but equally, from the perspective of like going into the future, I had never thought about the you know the, the fact that cash is actually used you know, in the, in, in, very massively in the informal sector and, and, and in the black market and, 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 and to what extent, um, you know, the, particularly the authorities are thinking not just about sort of how to ensure that it, it can be sustained, but, but equally that they continue to print it is what, is what something I hadn't thought about. Um, so, so I guess going into the future and as we think about this, this, this question of CBDCs, um, and, and, and digital currencies more generally is this idea that, you know, um, the technology will help us save, uh, solve some of these issues posed by, you know, the anonymity behind cash. Um, but they will also come to, 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 with, to some risks, including, you know, including other ways of, of, of laundering money and, and, and crime. Yeah, certainly cryptocurrency is uh, not immune um, from the use of uh, of it for, for laundering money. Um, and so we'll have to keep our, our eye on that. Absolutely. And I feel like this is a good segue into your, well, it's kind of a good segue into your article and, 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 and what you're sort of suggesting people to read. Can you tell me a bit more about it? Sure. So I read a book called This is How They Tell Me the World Ends um, by Nicole Pearl-Roth, who is a cybersecurity beat reporter for The New York Times. And the uh, the title of the book, I think, is a good way to summarize um, kind of this apocalyptic ver- uh, view of the, the future of um, cybersecurity. 
And the the book covers the basically history of the U.S. government's development of cyber weapons going back decades. And it begins with how the U.S. government used to purchase um, zero-day vulnerabilities or or gaps in software, basically on the black market, um, in order to to weaponize those vulnerabilities so that the um, NSA, CIA, and Department of Defense could continue to hack and spy on um, millions of devices around the world. So it is, um, it's a pretty dark book, I would say, um, but it's very interesting. And I think in this age of increasing um, cyber attacks and increasing um, demands for ransomware payments, it's a really important story to tell because it, the the main thesis that um, the the author puts forward is that the U.S. is um, somewhat at fault for the rise in these um, ransomware attacks and and cyber attacks uh, because it is the one that created many of these weapons and then unleashed them onto the world. And it is very hard once you unleash a, a cyber weapon to uh, to control it. And so, for instance, the uh, U.S. Uh, Stuxnet attack on Iranian centrifuges eventually came back to haunt uh, U.S. systems. And so it's just a really interesting story and one that, like I said, is increasingly important to tell as we have, uh, you know, SolarWinds attack, the recent um, Log4j vulnerability that's been exposed. And I think that going forward, this will be an increasing, uh, increasingly important topic. And so can you can you sort of like unpack a bit more like what you think those trends will be in that debate sort of in the next year with regards to both, you know, the, the, the biggest threats and, and, and sort of um, combating those, I guess, or countering them? Yeah, I mean, the biggest threat is the fact that the U.S. is probably the world's leading cyber power. Obviously, China and, and Russia are are right up there. But the U.S. has heavily overinvested in cyber offense and has left a lot of insecurities in our cyber defense. And so, and th- these problems are essentially baked into the internet from the the very beginning of the the World Wide Web. And so, it's very difficult to try and go back and fix all of these flaws. And then also. I would say, you know, cyber offense is a bit sexier for the U.S. government. It certainly likes to hold on to these cyber weapons um, and and deploy them. And I think that 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 weighted um, investment in cyber offense means that you know millions of devices, millions of people are going to be at risk for for vulnerabilities, and that there's really no market incentive to to fix this because as we know you know silicon valley's modus operandi has been to to move fast and break things and to quickly bring products to market and sometimes that means that these products are imperfect and while that is unlikely to to change soon i think you know obviously we'll go forward with exponential growth of of tech products it's going to be really challenging to identify the correct policy incentives to start and move some of that uh, heft back to on the on the defensive side. Yeah, and I guess as consumers, you know, as most of our economic and social lives are spent more online, 
there's more at stake, right? In terms of both how we transact as we were talking about cash and digital, you know, digital versions of it and how we, you know, how we uh, sort of have build our, pers- our digital personas. There is also increasingly more uh, sort of vulnerabilities that become more and more systemic as, as, as sort of, you know, we move into the online world, I guess. And there, there, there are both opportunities and threats, I guess, with this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, the numbers really do show that in 2020 and in 2021, when we all obviously moved every part of our lives online, there were exponential growth in the number of cyber attacks and the number of ransomware payments and the actual number of dollars made in those ransomware payments, which I think really ties into the the article that you're reading about the, you know, future of cash, future of digital currency, what are the risks? Um, and so it's it's uh, interesting to see how these problems are, are interlinked, and it will certainly be something to, to watch out for um, in 2022. Next up is Alex Dawson, practice lead for UK politics and policy, and Rebecca Park, senior practice lead for financial services. Right, Becca. Um <laughs> It's good to be talking to you as we're both confined to self-isolation. We've all probably had our fill of turkey, mince pies, uh, and all the trimmings of Christmas. So I think now is obviously kind of a a welcome distraction, is the ability to really get stuck into uh, what my colleagues have chosen on the Global Council sort of end of 2021 uh, reading list, which it turns out has been a kind of a strange highlight to my year every year that I've worked at global council um so i mean becca we're going to talk about your selection in a moment i I chose um something which is probably a kind of a peon or a tribute to uh something that i've actually probably do use most days both for my kind of professional life but then also actually just to kind of um uh just to sort of entertain me as i sort of go down the rabbit hole of various things on the internet and look to kind of educate myself about all sorts of things and it is wikipedia um and i'm going to be talking about a blog uh, that was written by a guy called ryan Bourne, who's a sort of a british libertarian conservative uh, he works out in the states who's uh written about the uh, the boon and the benefit that wikipedia provides how it does it and what lessons that uh i suppose people thinking about big tech thinking about innovation should take from it now, Becca, you've written something or you've written or picked something which I think is actually sort of quite analogous in a way, which is um, about the, uh, the the book review of a book about the payment system, uh, which is something I never thought would be interesting. But actually, having read it now, I'm quite intrigued. Please tell us more. Absolutely. So um, I chose a review of a book called Payoff, which was published this year, looking at basically the pipes and the plumbing that sit behind international commerce. And that might sound like a slightly grand statement, but ultimately how we choose to pay for goods and services, shop online, move money abroad, go on holiday, is all fundamentally linked to the way in which we can pay for things and the way in which that payment system operates. It's effectively tubes, piping and infrastructure. It's really a transfer of data um, and we never think about it. Not even as much as the tiny small amount we might think about banking or kind of where our savings are or where our debt is and how we manage that. We never think about payments until something goes wrong or if something goes wrong. And then suddenly you realize how fundamentally 
you rely on this mechanism, whether it's cash or paying for stuff online, using your debit card or credit card, or even kind of getting into the kind of heady heights of crypto and Bitcoin and, and all the kind of new modern payment forms we see coming down the line. And for me, this book, and particularly this review of this book, starts to give an overview of that. It's a really unpretentious look at the technology, the history behind it, how we ended up where we end up, and where we might be moving in the future. Um, I've read very few things that can bridge the decline of cash in the Welsh Valleys to, you know, the development of Bitcoin in Silicon Valley and what that might mean. And actually, this book is a brilliant overview of some of those issues and, and kind of what we're not thinking about, really. That's the thing. Is it, payments policy is going to be something that we're going to have to start thinking about uh, a great deal more as we think now about Bitcoin, as we think now about cryptocurrencies, and we think about how you transfer value. Uh, between individuals that are mostly linked by um, that are mostly linked by communications devices and uh, sort of data transfers, uh, and I think this is kind of something that I don't know. I mean, you know, as I tr- as I try to explain what Bitcoin is and how it differs from Dogecoin to my family over Christmas, it's something where actually sort of you you end up having to explain the difference between Bank of England issued coins and notes how that is different to private money created by banks how that relates to the swift payment system and then people start to kind of piece everything together and they think blimey actually how does how does this work and why have i been using it for so long exactly really thinking about it i once watched um i think it's fair to say four or five financial services lobbyists try to explain to a journalist how fiat money works and it was not an elegant episode for any of us as we sort of tried to kind of talk through all the different elements. And what I think this book does is it takes the the very theoretical ideas around what is money, how do you, how is it created, how is it stored, how is it value creation understood, and explains it in really sort of simple everyday terms, but then makes it applicable to the modern economy and how we think about digital money and payments. And so even if you're not an economist or a you know a financial services sort of industry participant or someone that really thinks about these issues, this book bridges it all from kind of the socioeconomic and the demographic challenges of money and some of the exclusion issues of not being able to access the payment system, but also to the to the broader foreign policy concerns. So it's written by two former executives from SWIFT, and SWIFT is the payments mechanism that enables us to, to move funds cross-border. And, you know, one of the topics it looks at is, um, you know, the use of SWIFT in foreign policy. So a lot of time um, in recent weeks, we've all been speaking about or reading about and trying to understand the kind of uh, European and US reactions to Russia's activity in Ukraine and whether that will bring sanctions. And one of the statements that's commonly kind of discussed is, would the US extend sanctions to include exclusion from the SWIFT payment system? Well, what happens when you now have well, you have challenges to the SWIFT payment system? You know, the use of distributed ledger technology means that we can have international cross-border payments without using traditional correspondent banking and SWIFT. So actually, you could see Russia, China, other countries developing their own payments mechanisms that are less reliant on our traditional structures. And suddenly, some of the tools that you have in your arsenal of foreign policy and sanctions requirements have far less potential impact than they might want to have done. So that changes a whole different side of the debate. And I think for me, it was starting to understand and think about these issues. It doesn't pose, it's not a book that has a solution and says, you know, the future is crypto or the future is cash free. It's much more about having a discussion about what those options might be, 
what it might mean and, and whether we are really starting to think about some of these policy debates. And I suppose it's a bit like data 10 years ago. Had we truly understood the provision of data across the internet and were we having the right conversations about it as a society? Although also on all of these things, it's a kind of a question of authority. I once, when I was working at number 10, sort of got kind of the, you know, one of the sort of economic advisors just to sort of basically sit me down and kind of just talk through some basic sort of economic sort of theories and tropes because I realized it was something that I didn't really know enough about um you know having come through a more political route into uh into government um and you know one of the most things one of the things that really struck me about what this person said was that you know part of the reason that sort of currencies don't really get debased is that it's the stamp of the state and it's the fact that you can only pay taxes uh, in British pounds in the UK or US dollars in the United States that kind of make sure the entire thing props up. So the idea of something that's non-fiat, the, the idea of something that is kind of owned by everyone and no one, uh, I think is, I mean, I think it's very interesting. I suspect that it's still going to require kind of the imprimatur of, uh, of a state in order for people to have trust in it. So ultimately, as we've seen over the last few years, um uh you know state action is still probably some of the most powerful action that you can take and we're kind of lucky in the west that often it's uh an unrevealed power rather than something that we kind of uh have um shoved in our face uh, every day i mean uh, i mean you know all this being said i think wikipedia does a very good job of um being authoritative even though it's not state backed even though there's no one there saying this is the kind of uh, this is the mechanism that you have to um, that you have to follow in order for something to be kind of truly valuable as a piece of knowledge and as a piece of information. But what you do have, and I think what this blog is quite good at sort of setting out, is that it is underpinned by free market principles, which is, which helps sort of provide challenge and push and effectively guarantee typically the quality of what you read on there. Now, I just want to reassure anyone uh, listening to this who are uh, clients of Global Council, when I say I use Wikipedia on a professional basis, it is uh, often as a uh, uh, either a kind of a checking mechanism or as a first kind of piece of routing infrastructure. You know, if I want to say kind of what uh, an MP's constituency was, often it's useful to know actually who held it in 1983 or 1987. Uh but obviously it's kind of it's it's always going to be one part of the picture um but i think the fact that it can be relied on to be one part of the picture is really quite something so i was going to ask you about that because obviously wikipedia is almost the the perfect example of a kind of non-state backed provision of knowledge and information and enterprise you know we all grew up in many respects with kind of um you know, information came through, you know, things like school textbooks and then kind of more traditional form encyclopedias. And they had a certain gravitas or kind of backing to them. And, and Wikipedia has built that over the last 20 years um, quite separately. Um, and I, what I wanted to sort of understand from you is you're sort of thinking around how and why it works. The idea that there is this information available on the Internet that is pulled and created across multiple sources sort of in its description carries huge risk, but it does seem to work and you do seem to get genuinely valuable data. Um, so how do you think that's come about? I mean, I think partly it's come about from sort of an early internet approach to community and having committed individuals who are willing to give up their time 
in order to help actually kind of ensure the quality of uh, pieces that land up on Wikipedia. Uh, so I think that's one aspect. But I think the second aspect is that it's had to compete to survive because I could just as easily go to the BBC elections page, for instance, to understand who might have been uh, the MP for a particular constituency in 2001. But actually, Wikipedia does that in a better, sharper way. And also, as someone who's expert on politics and lots of aspects of policy, uh, I can read Wikipedia and think, yeah, actually, that's kind of, that's fair. It's a it's a rundown of the arguments. It doesn't lead me one way or the other. So I suppose it also requires on validation by uh, intelligent users. And I use intelligent in kind of like the, the loosest possible sense, particularly after the amount of uh, sherry and uh, mince pies that I've had over Christmas. Um, but I think it basically requires people who, who know their stuff to... Uh, effectively give it validation. I'd still be deprecating towards anyone who used Wikipedia as a primary source. I think it is a router and a checker of information. I think it helps provide a basis for understanding. I still think you need to have, you you need to be referencing something that is kind of um, citable in another publication in order for it to work and in order for it to be kind of actually sort of something that I'd put in front of anyone else. So I still think it's it's only a part of the infrastructure, but it is a crucial part of the infrastructure in terms of knowledge. Well, I certainly know I'm going to get going back, um, no doubt, over the next few days, and invariably some form of family conversation is going to lead me to end up Googling some obscure term. And I imagine the first thing I'm going to click on is Wikipedia. But what I've never done is then click through and donate. Um, and so I suppose it that is the perfect example of you bring forward that that modernization of information flow, but also the, the digital payments mechanisms. Wikipedia's business model doesn't work without online digital payments and the ability for people to simply click through and use one of the many and various options to, to make those donations. And actually, I thought it was very interesting in the, in the piece you recommended about the value that Americans ascribe to Wikipedia versus the, the cost of alternative products and providers. And it has a totally different um, sort of commercial underpinning compared to, to most forms of information and kind of knowledge in this sense. Anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, but I mean, I, I think a lot of the story of the modern economy is how you value intangibles and how you, you know, and the, and the thing that sort of bugs me about UK productivity statistics never really... Uh, taking account of the fact that we now have a huge amount of uh, free mapping services, for instance, albeit paid for via our data that is um, effectively sort of, you know, part of an advertising transaction. Uh, But I think, you know, it's, we, 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 I think we struggle when we think about intangibles to sort of work out where they come from, what they're doing, actually what they are and, uh, how valuable they are and how policymakers, how people within the system that they operate are thinking about them and are using them. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, obviously it applies to the payment system too. Both of these things, actually, what I sort of found interesting were kind of largely about flows. Um, and Wikipedia is about a kind of a constant flow of information uh, that's kind of validated, pooled, etc. Um, and is therefore then useful in terms of the onward flow of what other people are doing and how they're using it and operating. And I mean, and that's the thing, the payment system, if you wanted to make a load of money, uh, you know, 
in financial services, but sort of didn't want to become a, a banker. Um, getting into payments was arguably kind of quite a sort of a sensible and savvy move. And that is all about kind of managing the flow of money around the world between different institutions, organizations and individuals. Um, and I think kind of an appreciation of flows rather than stocks is going to be, uh, I wonder, sort of something that we're going to have to think about a little bit more, particularly as you look at, you know, the way the stock market is operating in 2021, where, you know, with kind of passive funds, you actually start to see flows of cash towards the big boys in the room. And I just think this is something where we don't appreciate just the complexity of flows rather than the sort of relative simplicity of stocks. So that's probably more of a statement rather than a question, Becca. <laughs> no, I think that's right. And actually, I mean, fundamentally, at the end of the day, a payment is the flow of data. It is nothing more complicated than the provision of a, ver- a certain specific agreed form of data set under international standards that can be um, transmitted across various pipes and lines to the merchant that you're trying to buy the goods from, from to them, to their bank account, from their bank account to the sort of that, then through the payments chain through to the other players. And ultimately, that is data. It is agreed form standardized data. And I think the fact that we're seeing so many technology firms um, come to the table and want to participate in the payments market and almost disaggregate payments out of banking is a recognition and an acknowledgement that this is fundamentally all about data. And it is data that is immensely commercially valuable, that carries huge insight. Um, and we've seen entire business models built around how to capture, understand and, and monetize the, you know, other forms of personal data. And this is really sort of bringing very sort of stage traditional forms of payments data into that kind of modern technological conversation. Is, is there anything that we should think about in terms of kind of future regulation of data or actually we should be looking towards how um, payments and money are treated? And actually we sort of we should learn more about how how currency works in order to make data truly valuable? I think I think there is a big question in that space. And also, in many ways, the payments data chain has one of the most protected forms of, of data out there and possibly sets interesting standards and learnings for, for other forms of personal data. I think the final thing for me is also how the way that we regulate and structure that data has always been shaped by the people trying to defraud the system. And I find it fascinating that when credit cards were first launched in America, the way credit cards operated had to evolve very swiftly to deal with attempts to defraud the system, people getting cards that they weren't entitled to, people literally stealing the physical cards and printing them themselves and going on a spending spree with them. And that shaped all the forms of modern card technology that we have, from the the bumped numbers on the top to enable us to use click-clack machines, which most people listening to this probably still don't remember, um, right through to you know the debates and conversations we're having now about the fraudulent use of data online. And I find it fascinating that the technologies, rules and operations have been so heavily structured by the people trying to abuse it rather than necessarily innovation for the sake of constantly evolving. Well, I think that's also probably true of Wikipedia as well, where actually you've got a community of moderators who who are very, very intense about making sure people try to edit their own page or um, put in stuff that's clearly not accurate or not right is... Uh, heavily kind of punished by the the moderators within the terms of that community. And I think it is kind of, you know, it is, I suppose, it's kind of self-regulation for the means of self-preservation that has actually sort of forced probably some of these high standards into place in the first place. And it also kind of argues that uh, if you are a policymaker thinking about regulation of tech, uh, for instance, 
in a, in a way you need to make it about um you need to make it into a self-interested argument for players in that space to actually kind of uh move ahead with that and and carry on with that and there's only so much policymakers can do sitting in a legislature or a government ministry uh in order to force behavior change uh anyway i think we've probably run massively over time Becca, is there any final comments or thoughts? Nothing else from me. I think we've hopefully given people enough of a dip, a dip to dip their toe in the water and think about whether they want to spend their new year reading about payments or maybe just downloading a few more articles on Wikipedia or, or having a go and moderating them themselves. <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished, Becca. Um, <laughs> I'm still very unlikely to donate to it. Uh, all this being said, I'm sure, I'm sure it's part of the new drive uh, in the new year. Anyway, all right. Thank you very much. Thanks. Finally, Isabel Trick, Senior Associate in our Global Macro team, and Jack Keevil, Senior Associate in our Tech, Media and Telecoms team, discuss their choices. So, Isabel, you have picked an episode of This American Life, um, a very famous podcast, so I'm told. Uh, but for people like me who've not heard of it before, um, what, what is it? What's it about? Yes, uh, great question. Uh, thanks, Jack. So This American Life, I think, for people who are into podcasts, is kind of like the grandmother of all podcasts. It's um, an American podcast. It started out as a radio show and is still a radio show. Um, they bring it out every week, but kind of in the last few years, it's become very, very famous uh, as a podcast. It's been going since, say, I think the mid-90s. There's literally hundreds of episodes, um, one new episode each week. And what they do is um, each week they pick one theme and then that theme, um, kind of they then cover a couple of different stories around that bigger topic. And it's mostly true stories um, kind of told through a mixture of interviews and storytellings. Um, you occasionally get a little fiction piece, but usually it's kind of the key presenter, Ira Glass, and then going through different acts, they call it. And here specifically, I've picked um, an episode called Getting Out, which came out in late August this year. Um, and while the whole episode, I think, is great, it was specifically um, the first story which made me pick this episode because it was one of the pieces of media that I consumed this year that just really, really stuck with me. Okay, so this sounds like it's obviously a must-listen, uh, but what specifically was this first story about? Yes, yeah, so that first story, the whole um, episode is called Getting Out. So it's about getting out of impossible situations in different ways. Um, so that first story is based around a real phone call, um, much of which they actually play during the episode between a young man in Kabul who's trying to get himself and his brother and his parents out of Afghanistan after um, the US troops um, have mostly withdrawn. And on the other end of the line, you have an American man who's a volunteer who's working to get um, Afghans out of um, Kabul, out of Afghanistan, and trying to help him kind of navigate these really chaotic scenes in front of the Kabul airport. Um, essentially, it takes place kind of right after the fall of Kabul, before that really bad um, airport bombing. But so kind of the, the context of this is here in 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 the run-up to mid-August, the Taliban have gained power across the country very, very rapidly, much more rapidly than we um, expected or than I think the US troops and everyone expected. But because of that speed and the intensity of the advance of the Taliban, there was really very little time for Western countries to evacuate first their own citizens and then even less time 
to get out local men and women who in many cases had worked for these Western governments and had been promised visas because they were likely going to be targeted by the Taliban because of that collaboration. And essentially massive, massive chaos ensued. And that story kind of centered around that phone call just tells the story of one guy, Ajmal, and his family and how he's trying to get out. And it's just incredibly powerful, incredibly moving. Wow. So, and so why do you think it stuck with you so much? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think there's something just really immediate about listening to, to that recording of this phone call because it's real. It's not storytelling. It's not theatrics. It's just what happens. And they've just recorded this live phone call. And it just puts you there with Ajmal and you just really feel for him. It's super chaotic. There's thousands of people in front of the gates of Kabul airport. And he's evidently just quite a shy guy. And he's really struggling to get the attention of the soldier. And he needs to be as assertive as he needs to be. And you've got the American guy who's never met him before, but who's just part of this um, volunteer group. And he's trying to coach him through it. And it's just very powerful, very immediate. And it just shows you what it takes kind of for one guy to get his family out of that situation because spoiler alert, they, <laughs> they do get out, but he does, and he does manage to get on a plane, but it just needs incredible, impressive degrees of perseverance and luck and connections and what I think it also really is, it's a beautiful example of what um, this American life does really well. It kind of picks up really big news stories and then it humanizes them. So I would say at GC, we have to consume a lot of news for work, but that's obviously not the case for everyone. And I think sometimes I hear from friends that a news story is kind of just too big or too sad to engage with. And some of these pictures and scenes from Kabul airport, I think they're very much part of that because it was just absolute chaos and devastation. But I believe it's really important to stay engaged with the news and what that American life does. It helps people do that by taking kind of one aspect of a really big story. It focuses on one person's story and thereby makes it much more um, tangible and more human. And I think that really helps people wrap their heads around the bigger story that was maybe too overwhelming to engage with in, in its entirety. And I think that's why it was such a powerful piece of, of media. Yeah, that's, that's very um, understandable. And when I, when I was listening to it, I was quite struck by, how, by the kind of attention and the frustration that built with this guy who couldn't make himself heard through the, through the kind of crowd that was mm. gathering there, which is very good. Um, but obviously, the action takes place in quite far-off exotic locations for us here in Europe. Um, but do you remember where you were when you first listened to it? Uh, yes, I do. And I was actually slightly less far away than we are now in, in Europe when I listened to it. So um, as you know, I recently spent three months living in, in Qatar, in Doha, where I was helping to open um, kind of our GC's new, new Middle East office. And I'd really just only very recently arrived in Doha. Um, and it just made it particularly poignant as well, because Qatar actually played a really big role in the evacuations from Afghanistan, because lots of Western countries um, were flying their citizens out via Doha. And kind of either way, I was like new to the city. I didn't know many people. So podcasts essentially kept me um, company while I was exploring things. And generally, I would say during the pandemic, um, podcasts have become even more important to me because... I think you already spend so much time in front of the screen for work and for entertainment. So I really like having the opportunity to like consume smart things uh, while I'm out and about and taking a walk. So that is how I was listening to that podcast. I was on a very hot walk. I think it was over 40 degrees and quite humid, but I was still going for a walk because that's how I explore things. So it's walking along the Corniche in Doha along the coast. And that's how I 
how I heard it. And I think, yeah, it's got to stick with me for, for a long time as we look into kind of what's happening with Afghanistan in, in 2022. How about we switch this around? Because while I was off in podcast territory, you picked um, an article, which I've read kind of in preparation for our conversation and found um, really fascinating. Um, but for everyone else who hasn't read it yet, what's the article called and what is it about? So this article um, is, it tells the story of a chap called Ludovic Zanker. Uh, it's a Frenchman, lives near Rouen in France. Uh, far away from the kind of centers of international politics and, and power. But somehow he managed to present himself to the world's media as kind of this hyper-connected international deal-maker, power broker, political consultant um, who'd be kind of advising world leaders on international affairs, um, despite having zero credentials in as, as far as we can tell in any of these areas um and somehow we managed to get away with it uh, it so it tells us that um he well he's, he essentially started with a twitter following a twitter page he set up an institute called the institute european advices with all the typos that i've just said not the institute <laughs> of european advices no the institute of the institute european advices which again is a very kind of um, classic French mistake to make in English, I think. Um, and then he followed some people, they followed him back. And gradually this kind of, he built this sort of online persona, which at some point he managed to make the leap from the online world to the broadcast media, being interviewed um, as a kind of expert on uh, sort of you know, the tensions between EU, Russia, Crimea, um, and other other kind of international disputes. That's super interesting. And I think it fits quite well into the kind of last year we've had where disinformation both around COVID and I guess kind of on the tail end of the Trump um, presidency has played such a big role. Kind of how do you think he kind of used some of these disinformation tools um, to to achieve the kind of success he, he did achieve? Well, I, mean, I think this is one of the interesting things because the article also interviews some, some um, or consults some kind of uh, experts on disinformation campaigns who, who work in NGOs who, who sort of try to try to combat this kind of thing. And they'll talk about how he used the kind of classic tools that uh, a disinformation ca campaign would use, like setting up a fake website, um, social media channels, uh, kind of then spreading false information. But of course, ultimately, these are also the tools that legitimate, authentic stakeholders would use to do the same thing. They would set up a website, and then, then they'd kind of you know have their, their key messages, their talking points. They try and get some to, 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 to stakeholders. Um, so, in, in a way, sort of quite standard uh, um, techniques, if we can put it that way. And then, what what I found interesting is the way that kind of exposed the sort of weaknesses of the media system, whereby it took perhaps one or two journalists or researchers and from a news outlet. Um, they stumbled across his his kind of uh, online work, as it were, and then invited him on. And there became this kind of snowball effect. We are sort of legitimized by you know the people following you online, plus your media appearances. Then other shows invite you on to, 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 to talk about stuff as well. And all of a sudden, you're a kind of international media sensation. It's super interesting. And I guess these journalists must have just done a, a really significant amount of, of digging to kind of unravel that net that he managed to to spin. Did they figure out kind of who he was underneath it all? 
it seems that the 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 name of the chap himself was 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 Jen. That is his real name, um, and and they and they actually spoke to him as well as part of the part of the article. Um, apparently, it's quite a seemed to be quite a strange experience because you know because once you scratch the surface, it became becomes quite apparent that his kind of knowledge of the of the kind of um, the facts of the matter is quite superficial. Uh, talking about how London doesn't want to leave the euro area and all this kind of stuff. Um, but he'd sort of he would sort of still try and maintain the the charade, the persona, even even when he's been, been exposed in this way. Um, so yeah, very very sort of fascinating character study, as well as the kind of the mechanics of disinformation or you know lobbying uh, in sort of the in the broader sense. Absolutely. And what do you think was it kind of about that story that made you pick that specific article as like your favorite thing um, that you've consumed or read in the in the last year? What do you think was it that really grabbed you about it? So I generally, it's a, in some ways, it's like a bit of a pet topic of mine. I like this kind of um, all these things that raise questions about how we, you know, what we treat as credible uh, or or what is not believable and how it kind of then gets processed and how it gets then sort of repackaged and sent abroad in the system. Um, and and then they cites um, in this article as well, they, they, they go back to this uh, group of artists called the Luther Blissett Project, where they kind of perform these hoaxes. Um, and I think in those, the example they gave was a town in Italy where they sort of created this elaborate scene as if satanic rituals were taking place just outside the village um, and caused this kind of huge media storm and get, you know, the local local bishop was involved and everything else but it was um, completely fake yeah yeah it was, it was a hoax um and i i just have basically i have a, a soft spot for these kind of uh, hoax hoax stories and the way that uh, the way that people believe things that are perhaps not true well brilliant do you think there's anything the article teaches us or that we can pass on to our clients or listeners about how you spot a hoax or how do you spot that someone is impersonating an expert when he in fact is not an expert well, of course, if you're dealing with global council, you've got genuine experts on your hands, so there's no need to raise any such questions. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, I think we are, we've given some of our listeners some cool things to um, to listen to and to read, and I hope they, they find it very interesting. And I found this conversation fascinating, and especially European Union politics, I think, can often be so complicated that it's not that easy to spot for the layman if someone is impersonating you. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.